everybody, welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. Uh, my name's James, and back with me today, I have Jess from the Somex team, Henry from the Somex team, and a very special guest this week, Katrina. Uh, so, uh, Katrina, do you want to say hi and tell us who you are and what you do? Hi, I'm Katrina Mabry. I'm a consultant dermatologist and medical director at Dermatica, which is um, an online remote dermatology service. Yeah, delighted to have you. And yeah, looking forward to getting into the stories today. Um, Lots for us to talk about. So without further ado, uh, let's get into it. So our first story this week, uh, the Department for Health and Social Care has, and I'm quoting Henry here, just to be very clear, I'm quoting Henry, the Department of Health and Social Care has flopped a strategy into existence, which is a a heck of a way to describe a policy document. Um, Henry, do you want to to explain, explain this one to us? explain my verb choice well it was between flopped flumped and kind of wheezed i felt like it wheezed into existence um yes so we we finally have a a medical technology strategy from the department of health and social care and it is disappointing um right i've started this year trying to be really positive about stuff so i'm gonna i'm gonna continue to be positive about this as much as i can uh it it's nice to have it. Um, it's always good to see that medtech is getting some attention, even if that attention isn't even worthy of um, Steve Barkley, the Minister of Health and Social Care, and he sent one of his underlings to do the forward. Um, there are some recommendations buried in it somewhere, close, uh, mainly in the annexes, uh, Annex A and B. Otherwise, I think as an industry, we have a right to be quite disappointed in this as a paper. Anyone, anyone got anything nice to say about it? Katrina, what do you reckon? Trying to keep a straight face. No, it's it was woefully disappointing, wasn't it? Um, I thought it was very formulaic. Like, basically, they could have, it was kind of like they could have had a template for how to write a strategy and then just ask somebody with little or no knowledge to drop some bullets into it. It didn't have any depth or um, interesting analysis or kind of any specific examples. That's one thing I thought. I think... What you would hope from a strategy document, I think, is a nice little intro summarising where the industry has been in the last maybe two to five years and then kind of the key points moving forward. And both of those things were lacking for me. And I think some of the subheaders which I wrote down were just, you know, like in the, it's an innovative market. Well, yeah, no brainer. Um, we're going to enable infrastructure. There just wasn't enough spef- specificity and how these things were actually going to happen. That's what I was hoping for. And it, that's what was lacking. Um, because, you know, if I think about like, for example, my own part of healthcare dermatology is kind of like ripe for um, health tech because the government doesn't invest a lot in dermatology because obviously acute care comes first always. There are there are a few dermatologists trained per head of the population in the UK, and yet you know skin disease burden is huge, and like with an aging population is growing, and so there's kind of like a real gap there, and there's lots of opportunities, for example, for tech to come in and meet some of those. Um, needs and I don't I think this kind of document could have said the you know there's the certain areas that could be addressed even and for example given some examples and that was lacking so 
nothing really joyous to say from me either. Disappointing. Really disappointing. And given that the MPs group for, well, the Ministerial Medical Technology Strategy Group first met in 2007, when Tony Blair was Prime Minister, when Rihanna was number one. That's a useless fact for you, uh, with Umbrella, but topical given the Super Bowl. Uh, this is 16 years in the making, and I've now read it three times because I've nothing better to do with my life, uh, and I struggle to sleep often. Um, but the, the section on diagnostics is the one I keep coming back to because whilst I completely accept that nothing happens quickly at the top of government and that there's not a lot of political impetus to do something with this, given that we're probably 15 months out, 14, 15 months out from an election cycle. The diagnostic section is is a beautiful example of the kind of constant passing the buck nature of these things. So here it is. The pandemic gave impetus for the department to take an overarching view of diagnostics and to review the challenges and opportunities in the sector. As a result, last summer, ministers asked officials to develop a strategy for diagnostics that would bring together changes necessary for the NHS to tackle the backlog. Blah, blah, blah. Following an initial roundtable, including representatives from across government industry, the team spoke to over 100 stakeholders from across government, academia and industry. This included a survey of industry representatives and a series of industry webinars and a clinical advisory group led by the department's chief scientific officer. So what? What what came out of it? What 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 are we going to do with this knowledge? And also, given that that was a year after the pandemic was sort of politically over, at least a year after the pandemic was politically over, a group of ministers were asked to develop a strategy, and instead of doing so, they went and spoke to some stakeholders, and then nothing, just n- nothing. That's it. It just ends there. It's so woefully inadequate. And given that it talks at the very beginning about the fact that 5% of the NHS budget, so 11 billion quid, is spent on medtech every year, you would hope there'd be more granularity about what actions people should be taking off the back of this strategy. Do you know, Henry, I think maybe you should go and pitch yourself. I really do. I think you should contact them and say, hey, guys, I could give you an amazing strategy. Um, I've got the knowledge, I've got the experience, I'm invested, just let me do it. Just, you know, just let me have a crack at the whip. And they might say yes. Uh, they definitely won't. And I'm very good at finding problems. I'm not very good at solving them. So. <laughs> well, you could, you could try. Uh, I think it's a gripe of, I suppose, anyone in innovation, isn't it? That it's frustrating when someone talks around something and then doesn't actually go and solve it. And I think, I think, this is where I think the frustration lies. If you're going to write a document about innovation and then just sort of skirt around it and not have anything definitive to actually do, it's going to upset the people for whom this document was actually for. Um, and I think that's that's kind of where I got to with it, which is that I think to your point, it, it is, I hate the phrase great to see. It's, uh, it's not great when I see that phrase, but it is good that it's there. It's nice to see that at least there is a group that has, albeit a slightly reductive term, med tech part of it. But like, I, I, I don't know, man. I, I think 16 years in the making, could it have said anything definitive? I don't know. I don't know as that, as that it could have done, being created over that amount of time. But it's always great to see you saying great to see, because I know that'll eat you up for a couple of days, so... <laughs> one positive out of it <laughs> that, that will annoy me now now that i've said it yeah um cool so we conclude it was not great to see um however uh positives 
are there any positives? It's, as I say, there are people that are looking at this now. Maybe the next one will be better. Maybe feedback will be taken. I don't know, but you're right. I couldn't see, I couldn't see any definitive actions at the end. And, and that was, um, yeah, not, not the best. Uh, cool. So our second story this week um, is, comes from digitalhealth.net. Uh, why user needs should be at the heart of health tech. Um, heck of an opening sentence to this article. Digital solutions should never be imposed on patients or NHS staff. Yeah, agreed. Who's had, who's had a read of this? Uh, I've had a read through it. She messaged Matt Harrington, who wrote it, who's now at uh, Public Digital, was previously at Accurex, just to say that I wanted to tattoo the first sentence of it onto my forehead. But I realised that was a really ineffective way of getting that message across. It's weirdly common for, and this is not all technology companies by any stretch of the imagination, but it is weirdly common for health tech companies to be highly prescriptive when they're creating solutions. Nearly all of them have user experience teams, UX, UI teams. Um or at least someone in product who kind of covers that. But very often a problem is found and then with minimal consultation, a solution is created. And what that leads to is is technology being foisted, which is a, a verb I'm, I'm using a bit too much this week, but being foisted onto people. And that's never going to lead to good adoption. And I think the reason I sat up and took notice of this is that Matt, who wrote it, is formerly of Accurex, as I said, and they are probably it's fair to say the masters of primary care kind of user experience and integration and making sure that the user feels they're listened to. Um, and he talks about that in the article. He talks about his experience at working at Accurex and how they build stuff, software with the user at the heart of everything they do. And they, they genuinely do. If you look at their reviews, if you look at how well regarded they are by primary care clinicians and the primary care, work, primary care workforce more generally, they're a, they're an absolute benchmark. And so if Matt Harrington is is putting this out there, I think it's worth everyone who is selling into the NHS or building for the NHS to have a read. I know a lot of doctors. And when I talk to these doctors about digital health and about health tech, um, I am very, very often met with a bit of a like gut negative response from doctors who have had bad experiences with health tech. So for example, they've suddenly been told that they have to start using this technology to do this thing. And actually the technology is making their lives more difficult. Um, It's difficult to use. It's not actually helping patients or them. Um, And there's like very little communication in like in between them and the people making these technologies. Um, And then once they've had this bad experience, that really means that they don't want to engage with any digital technologies in the future because they're like, they don't have the time to waste on them. So it really, like one bad experience um, can like sour an entire clinician towards digital technologies for like the years to come. So that's why I think it says in this article that it's important to get it right first time. Um, And from a lot of the conversations that I've had, I definitely would agree with it. Like there's there's no room for mistakes. Um, Clinicians don't have the time or the capacity to to be forgiving and try again. Um, They want to see impact right from the start. Yeah, I mean, I've got a a few things in response to that. I mean, as a doctor, when I think about what kind of um, new technology I've had to adopt without question over the past couple of years, there's been, we use the Pando app 
for um, sharing Im- images in the hospital. Um, our dictation has gone from like old school dictaphones onto a dictate app, dictate IT app. And then obviously in the pandemic, we used um, like NHS Attend Anywhere to do video consults. And I would say actually that I can only speak from the experience in my department, but we were all very willing to engage and we just realized we had to get on and do this. And even like the older doctors, adopted these technologies like really quickly i don't think there was we do i didn't feel like you know in my one department there was much resistance and i think with this article whilst i agree with you know the sentiment completely and agree with everything that matt has written um i do think that doctors are a very niche user group and they are definitely not representative of the patient population as a whole and so that was my one kind of criticism maybe of this article is he's not extrapolated from other sources to to speak to the challenges of implementing new products when you're trying to serve people that maybe aren't as engaged in technology as doctors generally are. I mean, I think doctors generally, on the whole, (laughs) realise they've got to make changes all the time throughout their career and do adapt. Um, But, you know, definitely like at Damasica, you know, we're, we're definitely always considering users when we're, we're building new pathways and we're thinking about new products. But um, myself and the product team are, I think, you know, fairly distanced from the users compared to myself working in my NHS clinic where the users are just giving me direct feedback like all the time. And it's really easy for me to implement that when I'm, you know, um, thinking about service redesign. So I think it's it's an interesting, but not necessarily always super to easy to solve problem. The, the the issue of how you meaningfully represent user experience when you're designing. Well, our next one today is not actually a story. It's a report and it's a report done by the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, um, which has won Henry's Best Report of the Week award. Um, can't say there were many contenders. If it was between that and the MedTech strategy, it was quite a uh, it's quite a, quite an easy two-horse race, that. But uh, yeah, Henry, what, what do you reckon, the BCG report? No, this is nice. This is good. This is what... It is, it is also high level, but it's meant to be. It's a report from a consultancy about... It's, it's mystic megging the future, right? Which is now a verb. Um, so they're looking at what the future of health tech might look like. And it's nice. It's, well, I know this sounds odd for a strategy document, but it's not a strategy document. It's a, it's a what the future will look like document. So it goes along at a nice pace. It has lots of really good insight. They've done a really good job on this. And I'm not someone who is um often particularly complimentary about consultancy so i really enjoyed it and uh, katrina i know you had a read as well what did you think yeah i'm nodding away i mean i thought this was sleek and polished compared to the department of health and social care clunky boring report this was this is very nice i mean in an ideal world i would have preferred a little bit more data but that's just my bias i would have liked maybe some more numbers in there but i thought it was um super easy to read and you know understand in one sitting and it would be a great place to send people who wanted to understand the health tech landscape now quickly in the UK certainly so yeah it gets four out of five from me um Henry can we talk about the fact that you just said mystic megging yes we can talk about that I, I don't know we haven't done the 
deep dives if we're talking about consultancy into the data around pigeon listeners. So I don't know how many people remember um, the 90s. Um, but uh, Mystic Meg was a, a, a tarot car reader and predictor of the future who was on the lottery show, um, who used to not actually predict the numbers, uh, but remained in employment for, I believe, eight years, um, which puts her in that kind of niche category of people who can continue to do absolutely no good work, but remain employed, um, which I suggest means that she might be able to write the next med tech strategy. <laughs> how do you have how do you have the, the detail behind your random facts? Like how do you know that Mr. Meg was in employment for my, eight years? My wife regularly asks me, not how do you know that, but why do you know that? Because whilst I will routinely forget where my keys are, I am also quite good at retaining useless information, which makes me good for pub quizzes, but bad for general life. <laughs> Oh, heck, heck of a reference that, mate. That that really takes me back. Um, but returning returning to the BCG report, it's a it's a it's a nice conclusion. I think they've got the conclusion, or at least a few bullet points here. Seize partnership opportunities, demonstrate value, think big but start small. Um, it's nice, and they've also they also subscribe to uh, having a division with an X at the end because obviously putting an X in your name means that you're just a superior organisation. Something that at Somex we definitely subscribe to. So uh, yeah, they they talk about BCG and BCG X both being committed to uh, helping organisations enable innovation at scale. Do they work with NHS organisations then, BCG? I assume yeah, they do if they're writing this. 100%. Helios X, as Katrina's just mentioned as well, another good member of the Ending in X family. Basically, I thought what I wrote was that this report showed the maturation of the health tech industry and the way it said, spoke about how um, we've gone from startups with exciting ideas moving through to now established companies who are looking to produce demonstration outcomes and profitable business models. I thought that was... Yeah, that's just really, that's what's happening where I'm working in lots of other spaces too. I think going from like being excited about creating new ideas and products and now kind of we're saying, do they really work? And does this business model really work? And also going from tech companies working in isolation through to um, partnerships no longer being op optional. So I think that's the thing about healthcare, isn't it? It's actually extremely complex to deliver very good healthcare. And whilst tech companies have currently, you know, can pick off little areas, they're never going to be able to, um, without forming partnerships with both NHS and with each other, deliver kind of a full package that many people need. So I think it's good to kind of call that out and say that, you know, the future is going to be more partnerships. Um, so the other, the other things that kind of came out in this were that they see more home-based care happening. And again, I think that's really interesting because I think tech does have um, the opportunity there to help with health equity. We know that in the UK, if you live in a major city like London, uh, you're near to a big teaching hospital, you're going to get access to basically better technology, better services, controversial, but better doctors even. And um, I can see that in the future, tech could help um, change that change that so that people that are living in more rural areas could be kind of monitored remotely and then maybe 
triaged into bigger centres, not just based on where they live. So, you know, I think there's a need for that in the UK and it'd be great if that happened. Uh, They highlight that women's health um, is going to continue to gain momentum in the tech space. And I think, yeah, obviously we, we all completely probably agree with that. Like the menstrual cycle and how it relates to fertility and menopause is easy to um, monitor remotely and lends itself to tech. And then it mentions um, the growth of chat GPT in healthcare. And I think this is really interesting too, because we know, again, talking about improving equity, that health literacy and um, you know, the more literate people are, and also the more I think there's a there's been some big studies showing patient activation um, measures as well. So the more kind of engaged people are in their own care, the better outcomes they have. And it is quite a challenge sometimes to provide good education. I think I definitely feel this as a doctor. You know, when you see people, you can tell that some people, because of their own education level, will just quickly assimilate what you're trying to tell them and other people won't and the way that we provide resources about diseases and drugs at the moment is quite clunky you know uh, obviously we've moved to kind of paper-based leaflets to giving people websites but it's still not ideal so i think that there's a, there's an opportunity there to give like different levels of information based on different levels of education and then another thing that i noted down was the um which this report you know, speaks about is the opportunity for more holistic healthcare to be provided. So again, we know this is something that traditional healthcare models do really badly. And again, in my own practice, we have a big problem with obesity in uh, our severe psoriasis population, but we are just so poorly equipped to deal with that. We don't really have the expertise all the time um, in our clinics. And this report speaks about how tech can obviously um, help monitor sleep, nutrition and activity um, with tracking. And that could like feed into uh, traditional services. So I, when I read that, I was just thinking, yeah, that would be a massive um, opportunity <laughs> and it could really help in so many areas, especially with like the obesity epidemic in the UK, if we had more personalised information on what people are actually doing at home when they're not in front of us so they were my main takeaways from that report but i loved it i thought it was great oh i'm glad you read it katrina because that was a lovely a lovely summary of the key points but yeah i think it it it's a nice one isn't it because of the the recency of it to mention chat gpt like because because they've mentioned that like immediately the credibility of the thing goes up massively in my mind because you're like oh wow they're actually they do this was actually written relatively recently rather than, you know, as we've talked about reports that might've been on the shelf for 16 years, or at least, you know, the introduction was written 16 years ago. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I, I t- totally agree. I, I think some great, great points in there and nice, nice that they're um, nice. That they've got things on the pulse and, and able to pump out such a good report. Um, as I said, I do like the conclusion. I, I, I shouldn't have, I should have said before, like the, th- those bullet points were aimed at, the the companies at the startups um i think and uh, yeah those points were to seize partnership opportunities demonstrate value think big but start small and you know having having done a podcast with 300 odd episodes of interviewing entrepreneurs i think um you know i think the experienced entrepreneurs would say those three things are pretty key and yeah and, and like you said katrina i think many 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 health tech startups will solve a bit of a problem and actually it will feel like a whole problem to them. Um, but actually in the eyes of the buyer it still feels like only part of a problem. Um, and so that partnership bit, 
I think is incredibly important. I think for, we know that healthcare isn't a collection of products, it's a service and actually a service that needs to pick people up. It needs to then deliver a good service, whatever that service might be, but it then needs to put them back down softly and in the right places and needs to involve people and all that stuff that we know about what good good health tech services are. Agree. And I think that's what I really hoped would, yeah, I think that's what was needed from the Department of Health and Social Care report, like how to the do how, partnerships. Yeah. That's the key. That's one of the key challenges. Yeah. How. But yeah, great report. Thank you, BCG. Our final story today is from Femtech World, and it's why the growth of gut tech could transform female health outcomes. Uh, Jess, you've had a read of this. What is going on? Yeah, so um, anyone who has even a passing interest in health and wellness um, will know that the gut microbiome is a huge topic at the moment. Everyone seems to be talking about it. Um, so the gut microbiome is that collection of trillions of bacteria um, living in our stomachs and digestive systems. Um, and it's actually being called one of the most important scientific discoveries for human healthcare in recent decades. Um, and that's because um, some molecules that are produced by the microbiome are involved in so many different um, health outcomes. So that's everything from immunity to digestion, hormone regulation, um, reversal and prevention of chronic disease, cancer, depression, um, and inflammatory conditions. Um, and whilst there has been a lot of um, content produced and a lot of discussion about how we can optimise um, the performance of the gut microbiome, how we can keep our gut microbiome healthy. Um, in this piece, um, Dr. Caitlin Hall from Myota actually looks at the intersection between gut tech um, and femtech, um, so women's health outcomes. Um, and she kind of asks, can we consider gut tech to be a, um, a subset of femtech? Um, and that's because there are a lot of chronic health conditions um, that are related to the activity of the gut microbiome, actually chronic health conditions that affect women statistically a lot more than they affect men. Um, so research and development and technologies that are being currently worked on to enhance the functioning of the microbiome are actually having massive positive impacts on women's health outcomes. Um, so hormonal conditions, um, IBD, IBS, um, conditions that have very poor treatment currently, um, the, the potential that is now um, coming out from all this innovation of the gut um, is actually yeah, doing like, fantastic things in the women's health space. Um, and so, yeah, Caitlin's conclusion is that um, any developments and progress that goes on for gut tech um, is simultaneously fantastic for femtech and for women's health as well. So a really positive piece, um, really interesting um, to read. And for anyone like me who has an interest in um, the microbiome and in all of the like fantastic and incredible like interconnected ways that it um, interacts with other outcomes of health, um, this is a great read. Yeah, I've got something to say on that. I've actually just spoken to Thomas, uh, co-founder of Myota for the Health Tech Podcast. And... Yeah, what what they are, what he's done is like his research is fascinating. Like all about the microbiome, all about fiber, all about fiber being turned into short chain fatty acids, and then the prevention of things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease by the generation of short chain fatty acids. And I guess what 
rather than spoiler that whole episode, basically it seems like technology that will affect the gut and the microbiome perhaps is less is perhaps the question is less is this femtech it's more just is this a bit of everything tech because in theory that's like that could be neurology that could be i'm sure katrina there's dermatology that's going to benefit from microbiome increases it's 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 sort of like I'm, it's 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 a bit of a frontier, I would say, um, that we've got in medicine at the moment, the microbiome, because it seems like we are starting to generate far more evidence about everything that the gut microbiome is connected to. Um, I know we've talked about gut-brain axis and stuff before, but this just seems this seems to be going levels beyond now, almost like we're at the steep part of the curve of new evidence and and the way we think about gut health and nutrition as well because when i think about how we're going to live in 10 20 30 40 years i i I wonder like what's going to change really but then it seems like nutrition and all this research in gut microbiome is actually going to be the next frontier to helping us live longer and live better and live healthier and all those different things and maybe i'm overegging it i don't know but perhaps it's just exciting to me because at least there is a frontier in medicine that is genuinely really interesting. But I just feel like more people know more about their health via nutrition now. And it's never really been, I don't know if your medical school experience was the same as my treatment, but like nutrition was never really part of it. Like what you ate was never really part of your medical training in terms of lifestyle and diet and more that kind of lifestyle medicine stuff, which I know is creeping in a lot more. It just feels like the tide is turning a bit. And this article is very much like a case of the gut microbiome is massively connected to to women's health. Well, actually, like we talked about our women's health event, like women are 51% of the population. That's enormous. But, you know, it, this is this is health, really. It's just that women's health is just what health happens to women. This is just be- the gut health is benefiting health broadly. I don't know. That's my thoughts. Katrina, what, what, what did you, as a dermatologist, I imagine you've got something on gut and skin and. I mean, no, I completely agree with you both. I think this is a really exciting space and um, uh, yeah, absolutely. For skin disease, the microbiome is the extremely important, both the gut microbiome, but also the microbiome of the skin itself. You know, we know that um, the microbiome is altered in you know, a whole broad range of skin conditions from eczema through to acne and that we can, the way we, we can treat, we can treat and intervene with, you know, trying to restore that microbiome alongside traditional treatment. So yeah, I think this is extremely exciting. Um, As with any of these advancements, you know, um, I just think that the challenge is always going to be in the implementation and bringing that there'll be a significant time lag probably from bringing this new knowledge to having an impact on patients. And my only um, reservation when I see these kind of articles of like microbiome could help cure Parkinson's or Alzheimer's is that people really latch onto them sometimes. And, you know, what we do know is that most diseases are multifactorial and very complex and the microbiome will be one element that we may be able to positively benefit. But all the other things that we've touched on today, like, you know, sleep and genetics and will still also continue to play a role. So I am excited, but, you know, not going on the runaway train if it's going to solve all our health problems either. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I, I do. T- I do totally agree. I think the, the, the reason that you... 
you mentioned that it's something that we can control. I think that's why I get excited about this stuff because you mentioned genetics and the, and and some other things that you can't. And I think you can. We talk about going on a negative spiral a lot. If you don't eat right, and then you don't sleep right, and then you don't go to the gym in the morning, and then you feel worse, and then you sit down, and then your back goes, and then but you can end up in these negative cycles quite a lot. Whereas it just feels. And again, as I say, I might be overreacting it, but it feels to me like this might be an area where it might just kickstart people into a more positive spiral where um, positive benefits are seen and it is controllable. I want to get, I want to get excited about it. Yeah, no, I was going to say it probably lends itself to tech based more research. You know, we probably still need more big population research to see over periods of time, whether we can influence outcomes by, you know, tracking people and their microbiome so um yeah i think it is extremely interesting yeah i know there are a couple of um trials ongoing at the moment with the nhs so i think watch this space but i will start getting some really good data soon so it's exciting and i think yeah i agree with james that i'm excited about it because i see other people getting genuinely excited about it um and like the the pace is just exponential in terms of like innovation and new discoveries and it seems like almost on a weekly basis we're getting like exciting new stories and new research coming out um in fact i've actually been forbidden from talking about the gut microbiome amongst my friends because i talk about it so much that um i'm not allowed to talk about it anymore (laughs) but i'll talk about it here instead it is tough though isn't it because like something like the microbiome and, and and affecting it positively will do wonders for prevention won't it it will be you know that that thomas was saying earlier actually on on, on the other podcast i recorded that there are that there are kind of clinical or pharma companies can create these like clinical prescribed probiotics that i suppose are more in the treatment column but actually the most value from the microbiome and treating it properly, let's say treating it, but, you know, feeding it properly or whatever the right Being cognizant is. of it, yeah. Being mm. cognizant of it. The, the value there is going to be realised in prevention, isn't it? And well, that is a, just a, a nightmare of a business model to try and prove because what do you do? Like just record people for like 50 years and <laughs> yeah, it was great over that 50 year period. <laughs> that won't be useful to anyone for another 50 years. So like, yeah, it's it's a, it's a tough one, the prevention thing, and obviously the economics as well. And like, oh, it's it's a it's a tough one to it's a tough one to get in the prevention stuff. But yeah, exciting, it's exciting, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think it'll probably fall to some of those long term big health studies, like Framingham Nurses Health Study in the US, that track people over very long periods of time. I can see that. We're going to probably have to wait until. I mean, they're probably already doing it. And they're probably already incorporating it. But it's only when big populations are tracked over a very long period can you really draw meaningful conclusions about impact of exposure to certain things on prevention or new disease. So that's that's all I mean when I say I'm like not getting super excited. Is that I just think we're we're early early doors in the yeah the potential influence. But. Definitely. Definitely. Still plenty to do. Right. Before we let you go, Katrina, um, Dematica, what are you what are you guys up to? We've got a new um over the counter range coming out next month. So our current range is um 
prescription only treatment for acne, rosacea, melasma, anti-aging. Uh, and, you know, currently we also sell a, a basic cleanser and moisturizer, but bringing out a whole new range of products in March. Um, so a cleanser for acne, for example, that we've developed according to NICE guidance and yeah other ones for dry skin and then we've got um sunscreens coming out later in the year and we should also have some more uh, prescription products coming out too um and as we mentioned earlier we're really working on our user journeys at the moment so trying to make the pathway as simple um, and supportive as we can do both kind of in the initial stage because we talked about getting it right first time for people but also the aftercare part we're really you know looking into and Dematica is expanding um, expanding in the US and throughout Europe so there are other avenues that are happening in the business at the moment lovely well it's been a pleasure having you on thank you for joining us and for doing so much research and writing notes and actually actually having some useful things to say in and around our our useless comments but (laughs) thank you for that yeah we love we love guests who do their homework so thanks oh thank you well I, i mean i didn't spend too long but i you know i am such big fans of the pigeon newsletter um i've been a subscriber for quite a long time and i just think that it's funny and intelligent and informative and so i have i'm delighted to be a guest so thank you so much well you're very welcome and thank you thank you very much for saying that right everybody listening uh that has been another health tech pigeon podcast uh that was the week's health tech news if you want to grab any of the links to those stories, you can get those uh, by subscribing to the newsletter. That's at uh, healthtechpigeon.com. Um, otherwise, you can hear from us next week. Thanks so much for joining us.